Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's a warm welcome from Book Choice on Fan Music Radio 101.3, various other frequencies, and on our web www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bose Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, has a bag full of good books <laughs> to ward off this week's rain. Beverly Rosmuller turns her land lubber's eye to the world's greatest ocean in Pacific by Simon Winchester. Vanessa Levenstein, with her daughter Safra Bella Musicanth and others, play deliciously with Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, a two-part West End stage play written by Jack Thorne and based on an original news story by Thorne, J.K. Rowling and John Tiffany. Wednesday, this Wednesday, sees the start of the Open Book Festival at the Fugard Theatre, which runs until Sunday, September 11. We chat to Bongani Madondo, author of Sai the Beloved Country, who will be at that festival in lively conversation with Sinui Magona and Bongani Kona at the Gugu Suterbi Cultural Centre in Langa on Sunday, September 11. Melvin Minar found fiction that entertains page by page in the delightful Diary of a Body by Daniel Pennack. And there's the fabulous feast of the great South African cookbook. Peter Soule was delighted by the elegance and grace of the relatively public life of Jules Brodie by his grandson Daniel Brodie. And finally, Mike Fitzjames is up to his usual tricks of the mind with three thrilling spine chillers. As always, there's our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 rand Wordsworth Books vouchers, so stay tuned. Andrew Marshbanks, some good reading there. Hi, thanks, Gory. Well, a bit of news. The new Wilbur Smith has just launched and landed today. So that's really quite exciting. I think you'll find all our shops are filled with, with Wilbur Smith, which is really lovely. For all the fans out there, a new Wilbur is something worth celebrating. Secondly, the Harry Potter has sold hugely in South Africa and all over the world. And I thought it wouldn't really sell because it is a play script. Um, but I just realized I took it home to read. And it's like reading a James Patterson novel. It's all dialogue. There's very little description in there. So it's one of those things you pick it up and you read it and you get through it and you don't even realize you've read a play. So I can highly recommend it for anyone. The, the Harry Potter, the new Harry Potter is well worth reading and very readable. Right, let's get on to the new books for today. The first one, I don't know whether you all remember a book called The Miniaturist. It was a marvelous book that took the book world by storm, set in Holland in the 181700s, somewhere around there, about a lady who wanted and made a dollhouse and dollhouses, and what happened, and who she married, etc. Wonderful, wonderful book. Well worth reading. Pick it up in paperback. It's a good, good read. So that was The Miniaturist by Jessie Burton. Her new book has just come out, and that's called The Muse. Now, this story begins with Odell in London in the 60s and switches back and forth to Olive in Spain in the 30s. 
Odell is a young Trinidadian writer trying to forge a new life, and Olive is an aspiring artist, but unrecognized by her art dealer father. Um, so you get that conflict there. The two women are connected by painting by the mysterious artist Isaac Robles, and other intriguing parallels happen in, in this book. Uh, each is trying in her own way to create and develop an identity and roles that are uncommon for women. She writes beautifully. The suspense is there, and you feel totally involved. Highly recommended. The Muse by Jesse Burton, and it's 285 Rand. And then, uh, I don't know whether you remember, about two Christmases ago, a book called Sapiens came out by Yuval Noah Harari. I believe he's Israeli. I don't know very much about him, but Sapiens was amazing. The history of man, physicality, history, how he came about, the mental history, etc. A marvelous, really all-encompassing book. Well, he's decided to delve into the future. So we called, uh, his new book is called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. I've just browsed through it. It really is a hefty tome. Um, brilliantly written, like Sapiens, uh, destined to be a great bestseller in the book world. And people who enjoyed Sapiens are going to love this. Uh, that's Yuval Noah Harari, Homo Deus, and it is 340 rand. Right. Now, cookbook. The great South African cookbook just coming out from uh, Quivertree. Now, this is a compilation of fantastic recipes by all the great cooks in South Africa. Let me just give you a few of their names. I mean, it really reads like a roll call of who's who currently in South African food. Cass Abrahams. I don't know half these people. You must excuse me. I'm not one of these people. I don't go to all the right things. But there's Franck Dangereau there. Erida Dutoy, Hayscock. Ina Parman's in there, Jan Bry, Justine Drake, etc. And if you just go through the, Jan Bry, the guy, that amazing guy who invented Bry Day, talks about the perfect bride steak, how to do a bride steak. That's his thing there. What preparation, what spices, etc. And the Bry Freedom Fighter Burger. Uh, then Franck Dangereux does a recipe grilled sustainable fish with minted baba ganoush, burnt onion shell, and green oil. This is one of his famous recipes. So you get this at the restaurant. You can cook it yourself here. And it doesn't look too difficult, actually. And he does a sweet with that. Plums and verbena syrup with almond gratin granola and hazelnut ice cream. That looks a bit more complicated to me. Then Mimi Jardim, cooking with Mimi. She does prawns and beer and chocolate salami. Now, her chocolate salami is amazing. So, this is a book. I'm sure any cook that's not in the book is probably committing harikiri at the moment, but it's filled with the great chefs, the great restaurants, their great recipes. So, that's a great South African cookbook, and it is 450 rand. The next book I have is Africa's Top Geological Sites. It sounds very dry and dusty, but for anyone who likes traveling around Africa, South Africa, these are the sites you see on the side of the road, and these are places actually you will travel to to get an idea, because these are all the places where geology has shaped the landscape. Victoria Falls, the Matopa Hills of Zimbabwe, the Cape Fold Mountains, obviously the Table Mountain, Fish River Canyon, 
They explained in great detail. There are 44 sites that are covered by this book, copious illustrations, copious explanation of it, exactly how they were formed, why they were formed, where they were formed, etc. That is Africa's top geological sites. This deserves a place on any traveler's bookshelf, and it is 390 rand. Marvelous value. Right, that's it. Thanks so much. Cheers. He mentioned, uh, Andrew, you mentioned uh, Wilbur Smith. We're going to be talking to Wilbur Smith. That'll be next month. About it. Not so much about his new book. I want to know his lifestyle and how it's going with Mokaniso, etc., etc. Okay. Beverly Ross-Muller. There's more to the great Pacific than meets the landlubber's eye. Whenever I hear the word Pacific Ocean, I think of that warm, balmy water into which bikini-clad beauties drive and plump coconut plop. But, of course, there's far more to this mighty ocean, some of it quite scary, and prolific author Simon Winchester has written a fascinating account of this, the largest ocean on Earth. Winchester is well known for his books on big themes, including Atlantic, the predecessor to this one, as well as Krakatoa, the map that changed the world, and one of my personal favorites, Bomb, Book, and Compass, about how China discovered, well, almost everything. He has a knack for making complicated themes seem relatively easy to digest. So Pacific can be read as either a bright commentary on surfing, the media revolution of transistor radios, and the wonders of coral diving, or on the other hand, a cautionary tale of radioactive bombs and unstable continents and fragile ecosystems on our planet. Never a dull moment. The book is divided into ten major events or themes, but it begins quite literally with a bang. In 1950, the United States began to bomb the daylights out of parts of the Pacific, during which time it was transformed into the world's first and only atomic ocean, leaving a dreadful legacy. Areas including the famous Bikini Atoll remain so radioactive that they can never be inhabited again, displacing thousands of indigenous people. This was during the Cold War, and heated decisions were made which, in retrospect, were disastrous. In 1954, the hydrogen bomb Castle Bravo was exploded by the United States, by far the biggest nuclear weapon ever exploded, an experiment riddled with tragic mistakes and sheer stupidity. By contrast, in Pacific, Chapter 3 is The Ecstasies of Wave Riding, and it gives us a breather from bombing and reminds us that surfing was practically unknown to the world until the 1960s. The exhilaration of standing on a board powering through the crashing open ocean was discovered through the improbable vehicle of a low-budget, otherwise forgettable movie named Gidget, in which a slip of a girl learned to steer a plank-shaped object in the ocean. Surfing was already known to Pacific Islanders, such as Hawaii. But after Gidget, it became a symbol of the good life, of freedom from care, and an antidote to geopolitics. Once upon a time, Japan controlled the world of electronics. Winchester charts how China has taken over that role and is quickly colonizing great tracts 
depths of the Pacific and its islands in much the same way as the former colonizing powers had once done. There are also chapters on what lies beneath, great volcanic eruptions and extraordinary formerly unknown sea creatures and the origins of this very primordial soup of life. There are passages on the vast ocean voyages that humans undertook from one landmass to another, and the shifting continents, and the way which pollution threatens sea life and ours, and all manner of mighty and tiny details which Winchester treats with equal and passionate regard. You may not read all of the Pacific, though I hope you do, because you'll learn a lot, I certainly did, but its writing is so rich that it caters for the widest spectrum of readers, from those with a taste for popular culture to those whose interest lies in the scientific, economic, or organic. One thing is sure, the Pacific Ocean is the greatest indicator on Earth that everything is related to everything else, and we'd ignore that lesson at our peril. I've been talking about Pacific, the Ocean of the Future, by Simon Winchester. Vanessa Levenstein, you, your daughter, and others had fun with the script of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Hogwarts will be the making of you, Albus. I promise you there's nothing to be frightened of there. As Harry Potter waved goodbye to his son Albus at King's Cross Station, Potter fans wailed giant Hagrid tears, not because of the sentimental farewell, but after seven books and eight movies, we were saying goodbye to our beloved wizard forever. Or so we thought. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, a play by J.K. Rowling, Jack Thorne and John Tiffany, starts where the seventh book ended. For the disappointed muggles that can't fly to the West End via broomstick to watch the show, our consolation is the rehearsal script. Theatre historian Oscar G. Brockett describes the basic elements of theatre as the script, the performance and the audience. While a novel is a complete literary form, a script is but a third of the finished product. The stage production of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child has superb actors and dazzling effects. So in reading the script, one needs to fill in the blanks. For Potter fans, this isn't difficult. Apart from the change of literary genre and the age maturation of the three protagonists, there's another significant point of diversion. The recurrent theme in the Harry Potter series is the triumph of good over evil. While the same is true for The Cursed Child, a stronger theme in the play is the relationship between parents and their children. Harry the orphan battles in his role as father to his young son Albus. His former arch-enemy Draco Malfoy is also hopelessly in the parental dark. The adult Harry confesses to Draco. Love blinds. We've both tried to give our sons not what they needed, but what we needed. We've been so busy trying to rewrite our own pasts, we've blighted their present. The complexities that make up the invisible bond of love between a parent and child are as powerful as the deepest magic. That's why I found reading the script particularly enchanting, as my co-reviewer today is my daughter, Safra Bella. This is a story very much about the relationship between parents and children, but it is also about the journey of finding yourself as a child. Albus Potter is the child of the most famous wizard in history. Trying to live up to what you think is expected of you is not easy, as Albus tells Harry. So what would you like me to do? Magic myself popular? Transfigure myself into a better student? 
Just cast a spell, Dad, and change me into what you want me to be, okay? I am a total Harry Potter fan, and I found this book very satisfying. It was brilliant and fulfilled all my expectations. I did not find it challenging reading the play as opposed to the novel. I found reading it in the play form very enjoyable. This story is linked to the third book, The Prisoner of Azkaban. They share uncanny resemblances. The Time Turner is a huge part of the third book and the play and shows that the smallest little change can alter the entire future. I identified with the Harry Potter characters very much when they were kids, especially Hermione Granger. As they grew up to become adults, there wasn't much change in their personalities. They were still their wizardy selves. I still identified with them, but this time more with Albus and Scorpius. This story is evenly shared between Albus and Scorpius and their parents. Albus, like his father, values friendship very much and will do anything for his friends. Harry's disapproval of Scorpius did not stop their friendship forming, and Scorpius also values the bond he shares with Albus. All I ever wanted to do was to go to Hogwarts and have a mate to get up to mayhem with. Just like Harry Potter. And I got his son. How crazily fortunate is that? You're my best friend, Albus. Reading this play was like stepping right back into the magical world of Hogwarts. There was a huge twist in the play which I was definitely not expecting. Some of your favourite Potter characters make an appearance in this play. Even some people who you thought you'd never see again come back in an interesting form. I'm not going to spoil the play by telling you. You're just going to have to read it yourself. In every shining moment of happiness is that drop of poison. The knowledge that pain will come again. Be honest to those you love. Bongani Madondo, we're going to chat about your new book, your first in a decade. It's called Sai, the Beloved Country, which, in fact, Shingai Darangwa reviewed last month for this program. Is it your first in a decade? No. Sai, the Beloved Country is not my first book in, in a decade. It's actually my second book. Two years ago, I did a conceptual biography of Brenda Fassi with mm. the help of my friends called I'm Not Your Weekend Special. So this one follows hot on its heels two and a half years later. And the reason we're chatting to you is that, in fact, you're coming down to Cape Town from your home in Johannesburg for the Open Book Festival, which starts in two days' time. Sai, the beloved country, is, what do I call it? It's a rough ride in an electric chair. You slip easily, amusingly, energetically, intelligently from one genre to the next, from an essay on race to memoir to fantasy, from an analysis on violence to satire, current affairs to letters, to an ode to Miriam Makiba. Tell us a bit more about Sai, the beloved country. Well, you've just covered a good chunk of it, but I can give you a lovely synopsis. At the back of the book, there's a, there's a beautiful blurb that the publishers put down, and I want to read from it quickly. It says, Side the Beloved Country is a source too of literary performance that showcases essays, memoirs, the interview as an art form, profile as a form of theatrical set piece, travelogues, political epistles, and excursions into fantasy and fiction. It speaks to disparate genres with the same spirit 
as it addresses a country no longer at ease with itself. Madondo is at his finest, tackling themes as disparate as race and its isms. The new bourgeois, the idea of God, nascent black punk culture, and black magic. Simultaneously, a synopsis and a critique of a country. Side the beloved country comes out like a soul blast. And basically, I mean, it goes on to say, with its inbuilt shrug, Sai is less a fan book boy and a mod with hipsters and more of an adult lover and critic of a country in conversation with his people, the so-called ordinary folks, the wealthy, the beautiful, the deranged, and the truly genius. They are people of the South. This is what this book is all about. It's almost like a cultural biograph of the entire country. Well, I think all of that tells us very strongly why yours will be one of the really thrilling events at the Open Book Festival. As you discuss your book, you're going to discuss Side the Beloved Country with not just one, but two of our well-known and well-loved authors. One is Sindhuwi Magona, and the other is Bongani Kona. Sindhuwi, as you know, published her autobiography to my children's children in 1990, didn't she? And yes, she did, yeah. Okay. And has published eight, I don't know, eight or nine books since then. She's brilliant. Well, even more than that, she's one of our iconic writers and our mothers. Um, one of the most beautiful books, the most touching that I've read in a while around that time was the one that she wrote about the mothers um, of Emmy Bill's killers talking to Emmy Bill's parents. If you remember the story of Amy Bill from, from the U.S., who was married, I think it was in Kailisha, and Cindy wrote a book about that. That was like incredibly touching, in fact. I've met her only once. I bumped into her at the French Literature Festival for four months ago, and, but I've been a fan of her work, including her nonfiction. Such an incredibly beautiful spirit and a beautiful woman and a beautiful writer. I'm really looking forward to discuss with her. Okay, and I'm sure you're looking forward also to talking with uh, Bongani Kone. I mean, he was shortlisted for the 2016 Kane Prize for his gut-wrenching story, At Your Requiem. What aspects of your book do you reckon you'll be discussing with those two remarkable writers? I love Kona as well. I mean, from his work, when we're starting out contributing to Rolling Stone, to Chimuranga Chronic, to him writing creative fiction and non-fiction, such an incredible youngster and really, really has got a, like a vast talk of vocabulary of beautiful, you know, words, ideas and colors through which he paints his stories. And so, like Cindy, I love the balance of seasoned, you know, being sandwiched between a seasoned writer and then an upcoming writer like Bongani. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'll be that sausage in between. I'm looking forward to discuss anything that they would like to know about the book. The book speaks for itself. It's a sprawling, psychedelically designed cover, yellow, 520 pages. As you say, it moves from one genre to another, one story to another and it almost covers a huge chunk of the things that concerns ourselves 
at a realistic and metaphysical level. So I'm quite open and I would like to be led by them. What is it that they would like to know as well as the audience? You know, when we do these book events, it's not about what you'd like to say, because once you've written the book, you don't want to say much about what you've written. You just want to hear other people's interpretation of it, and then you can respond in a cycle as well of conversation that ensues out of that. Well, you can hear Bongani again, more Bongani, at the Gugus Derby Cultural Centre in Langa. I'm giving some details because I think this is very fascinating. He's talking from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. on Sunday, September 11. Tickets available at Web Tickets on their website. They're 30 rand. But fascinatingly, there's also an 80 rand ticket which covers for both entry fee and the transport. You get into a minibus at the book lounge on Roland Street at 1.30 p.m. and they'll bring you back to the pickup point. So, for more details, do go to openbookfestival.co.za. Melvin Miller, you were entertained page by page by the delightful Diary of a Body by Daniel Pennack. Diary of a Body by Daniel Pennack. This is a genre of writing that we sometimes mislay. Solid literature, fiction that entertains page by page, often sentence after sentence, yet continually reminding us of our humanness. Gentle humor in the greatest scheme of life, the ultimate solace of personal and honest truth, a modern morality tale of sorts, in other words. Daniel Pinnock, short for Pinaccioni, is one of those acclaimed writers whose work continues a great French humanist tradition. Think Jean-Jacques Rousseau but only occasionally crosses the channel. He is funny and yet solid on the message of what another French writer, André Malrose, called La Condition Humaine. Diary of a Body is an unusual but extremely clever concept, and all the more entertaining for it. For the literary-minded, the gorgeous links are with the stylish, typical autobiography as time journey, and the reflective diary as penance and shrink. But it also mirrors the iconic tale of every man, the classic story of one man and his life. The difference in this all-too-readable book is that that life is the man's body itself. In an ingenious coup of construction, the narrative focuses on the physical of the personality, the character as it moves from birth, boy, to man, to death. It's a life story, but one that is anchored throughout in and mirrored in the teller's living body, and there is no cover-up of sensitive parts or issues. It relates the story in the first person of the reactions and changes of the body, the physical being of a writer, unnamed but identified as son, husband, father and grandfather as the story progresses. The format is a secret diary, left after death to the daughter, who in turn hands it over to one publisher called D.P. Entries are specifically dated, a countdown from the glorious age of 12 to the grand old 87. This structure not only echoes that typical of classic adventure books, but adds a reality reference which plays in real history and offers scope for delightful social commentary. If all this sounds a somber and heavy read, the opposite is true. Pennock's style has a light-hearted directness like a diarist who wants to record something as vividly and briefly as possible, allowing many jokes and sly honesty. In fact, this is as close a perfect book to read out aloud and share. Yes, the translation is superb. 
Here, for example, is the diarist recording an experience on a day at the age of 79 years, one month, two days, and dated Tuesday, May 22, 1997. Brutal encounter with a street lamp this morning. I was walking near the Sorbonne, radiant sunshine. On the opposite pavement, a group of college girls was in joyously greeting spring. They had come with their breasts, which were living a life of freedom beneath their buoyant blouses, and for one of the girls, they were blossoming from the low neckline of some sort of vest. Oh, such a lovely lorry driver. As I walked, I looked at them, thrilled no longer to be in a position to desire any one of them. A kind of pure wonder and delight. The street lamp paid no attention to this. It clobbered me as violently as I've been a dirty old man hypnotized by his prey. I fell backwards and practically fainted. The young women came to my rescue. They set me up and then brought me to the pavement cafe. The street lamp was still resonating in my skull. I was bleeding. They wanted to call an ambulance. I refused. They went to buy some disinfectant and some bandages at the nearby chemist. I was able to contemplate to my heart's content the breasts of the one who, leaning over me, was bandaging me up. You really don't want an ambulance? No. They called a cab that didn't want to take me because of the blood on my shirt. I phoned Mona and I ordered a cognac for myself while I was waiting for her. Then a month low and two coffees for the young women to thank them. Are you okay? Are you sure? Yes, yes, don't worry. I've only been attacked by a street lamp after all. Together with a delicious self-mockery, a passionate sense of the self and personal as unique body underscores what is finally a gentle, brittle meditation on the passage of life itself. Oh, that was lovely, Melvin. Well done. And uh, Peter Soule, a biography, you say, of elegance and grace. The relatively public life of Jules Brodie is written by his grandson, Daniel Brodie, and published by Jonathan Ball. At the outset, I should note that this is one of the most delightful books I've read in a long while. Jules Brodie was a giant on the social scene in Johannesburg. He was a celebrated advocate, known for his skill in cross-examining, a founder member of Lawyers for Human Rights, a champion of those oppressed by the policy of apartheid, and could count on Nelson Mandela and Oliver Tambo amongst his large circle of prominent friends. But above all, Jules Brodie was an inveterate storyteller, and for many years the Brodie family used to agonize on how these stories would disappear unless they were written down. The task eventually fell to Daniel, the grandson, who struggled for ages to produce this biography. That he has done so with elegance and grace is a testament to his ability as a writer. For the book is not only a biography of Jules Brodie, but describes the agony of a young man who originally thought it would be a simple matter to record the stories, but is overwhelmed by the enormity of the task. The book is more than a portrait of an unusual South African life. It is the moving tale of a complex and tender relationship between grandfather and grandson and an exploration of how we are made and unmade in the stories we tell about our lives. Jules Brodie was born in 1919, grew up on the streets of Yeovil, fought in World War II, and became a celebrated advocate, appearing frequently in the courtrooms of apartheid South Africa. He met Nelson Mandela, who sat next to him in the law school at the University of the Witwatersrand, and a lifelong friendship developed. He died in May of this year at the age of 97. 
The relatively public life of Jules Brody is full of fascinating anecdotes from his vast array of life experiences. Jules was a giant in the world of storytelling, and Daniel has faithfully recorded on a dictaphone the clear-edged tales spanning almost a century, those that his grandfather told him. They are gripping stories, compellingly conjuring up other worlds which are made even more real in the manner Daniel has reproduced them, faithfully recreating Jules' style and nuanced expressions to the extent that one can almost hear his voice and in particular that well-known phrase, Come on, laddie. The love between grandfather and grandson shines through the pages as they spend hours together telling and recording the stories. Daniel Brody was born in 1976 in Israel, but has lived most of his life in South Africa. After completing a BA at Wits University, he worked variously as a researcher, actor, and film editor. In 2001, he was nominated for a Vita Award for Best Supporting Actor for his part in the play Proof, and I thoroughly recommend his book to you. And Mike Fitzjames, again you're hoping to set our nerves a jungle with three dynamic thrillers. Good afternoon, Gary. I have three recommendations for your listeners this month. The first one is The History of Blood by Paul Mendelssohn. This is a first-class, uncompromising thriller set against a backdrop of Cape Town and its suburbs, plus a graphic move away into the hot and dusty African veld. When the SAPS receive a call for help from the estranged daughter of an apartheid-era politician, it leads to the discovery of her abused body. Inside her body is a message which drives Colonel Vaughan de Vries and Don February of the Special Crimes Unit on a journey throughout the country and the country's past. Organized crime grips South Africa. New players arrive in Cape Town, bent on the exploitation of the poor and helpless. As other government agencies, under strict instruction from above, chase the smaller fish and foot soldiers, De Vries, linked by his personal connection, resolves to follow this trail to its source, with the intention of destroying it from the top. As the webs of corruption and influence are exposed, the boundaries of morality blur. This is definitely a must-read. The second book, The Kept Woman by Karen Slaughter. A body is discovered in an empty Atlanta warehouse. It's the body of an ex-cop. Bloody footprints which lead away from the scene indicate that another victim, a woman, has disappeared. To complicate matters, the warehouse owner is the city's politically collected local hero, a high-profile athlete protected by a battery of expensive lawyers. Now, to top it all, Special Agent Will Trent has spent the last six months investigating the same local hero on a brutal rape charge. For Will, plus Dr. Sarah Linton, the GBI's newest medical examiner, the case is about to get worse. This case will wreak havoc on his life and on the lives of those he loves, those he works with, and those he seeks to bring to justice. Hard to put this thriller down. The third book, The Owl Always Hunts at Night by Samuel Bjork, 
I remember quite clearly reading the first book from this author and making a note of his name. I'm happy I did so. This book is tense, intelligent, and a tad scary. When a young woman is found dead, the police are quick to respond. What they find at the scene is unexpected. The body is posed, the background laboriously set, and there's almost zero forensic evidence to be found. Detective Mia Kruger has recently been sidelined pending psychological assessment. However, her unconventional boss has less regard for the rules than maybe he should. Desperate to get Mia back to the office, Holger Munch offers her a deal. The unusually brilliant Mia is, for once, struggling, and her team are unable to close the case. Now, a young hacker uncovers details which point to the scope of the murderer's plans and that he is already on the hunt for a second victim. Keep the lights on and keep reading. My choices this month were The History of Blood by Paul Mendelssohn, The Kept Woman by Karen Slaughter, and The Owl Always Hunts at Night by Samuel Bjork. Enjoy your reading. And that's it then. Thank you for being with us. From Mawandi Lobi, production engineer, from Rick Everett, who compiled the music and so cleverly kept the show on the road, and from me, Gory Bowes-Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them.